Now, if you want to turn in your Bibles, please, and I want you to do that, of course, uh, to Ezra chapter 5 and also the book of Haggai chapter 1. And so turn to those two passages, Haggai chapter 1, Ezra chapter 5. So I want to just read a few verses from each place as you turn to these passages. Can I also add my own words of welcome? And we pray that God will be with us here today and touch our hearts. Remember uh, the evening service for the Reverend Stuart preaching, and I trust you'll all be out to support him and pray for him, and especially pray for him. Uh, may that prayer room be filled up this evening with men and women, young people laying hold upon the Lord, and I value your prayers for the meetings in Newtonards, and there's a long-standing arrangement will be there. Uh, from tonight through to Friday, uh, preaching each night, and we value your prayers for those meetings. Uh, may the Lord visit us all in these days. So we're turning to Ezra chapter 5, just reading the first two verses, then turning over to the book of Haggai chapter 1. Ezra 5, then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah, and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshur, the son of Josedach, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God, helping them. And turning then to Haggai chapter 1, to the final part of this chapter, Haggai chapter 1, and the verse number 13, just these three verses to the close of the chapter. Haggai 1, 13, Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord God, sorry, the Lord of hosts their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And God will add his blessing to the reading of this his own infallible word. Now let's just again have a word of prayer. Let's all bow together. And consciously and personally lay hold on the Lord. Pray that He will speak to your heart and that He will meet with us today as we gather before Him and we meet around His Word. We need the Lord's power, the Lord's blessing. And our Heavenly Father, we wait on Thee. We pause to lift up our souls again as a signal of our need of the help of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, O Lord, that Thou wilt breathe on us. Thou wilt cleanse the heart of the preacher, fill me with Thy Spirit, come down upon this gathered company. May every distracting voice and thought be dispelled. May we be shut in with God for a time, and may the Holy Spirit be upon us and with us as we wait in Thee. Bless us now, O Lord, and continue with us. We ask this in Jesus' name, and for His sake and for His eternal praise and glory. Amen. Amen. If you will turn with me back to Ezra now and keep a marker in Haggai 
We'll be coming to Haggai mainly today in this message, but I want to take you back to Ezra just to make some opening remarks with regard to the message that the Lord has given me for this service today in this series on the book of Ezra. In the words of Ezra 4 and verse 3, the fathers of Israel presented a very clear answer to those who sought inclusion in the service of God but were not entitled to be included. Those words are, we have nothing to do, or sorry, ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. The essence of this reply is that between God's people and those who espouse false religion, there is a distinct line of separation. The Samaritans who made their subtle overtures with the goal of infiltrating the ranks of God's people were false religionists, false worshippers, other gods, other uh, aspects to their worship that was completely contrary to the mind and the will of God. And therefore, there could not be any affiliation with them or any cooperation with them with regard to the rebuilding of the temple. The true God could not be genuinely served based on an amalgamation with those who at heart were actually opposed to what He had revealed with regard to uh, His person, with regard to His worship, with regard to His way of salvation. And therefore, the separatist stand of God's servants was right, as of course it is always right. God has a distinct purpose in commanding His people to be a people separated unto Him from compromise with false religion. And this is the line of thought that we noted in the message two weeks ago. I set before you one main point. Separation from false religion is God's way of preserving the gospel. It's impossible to be in fellowship with error and not be polluted spiritually and morally with that error, even physically. Therefore, for the preservation of the gospel, the Lord calls on His people to remain separate from all false religion. We need always to keep that in mind and take heed to that great and important doctrine as it's revealed to us in the Word of God. In relation to God's purpose in bidding His people to separate from false religion, there are other issues that I didn't have time to consider in that message. For example, separation provides for the unity of God's people in doing His work. Note that verse again. They said, Ezra 4 verse 3, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God. This was really to say that on separated ground they were truly united for the work. You see, the Samaritans were proposing a union. They were suggesting that they could come together with the Lord's people and enter into the work and, and take part in the rebuilding of the temple. Their goal, of course, was to introduce their worship when they would get a foothold and their way of beliefs and so forth. And so they were proposing a union. Outwardly, you see, it would have appeared very attractive, suggesting that greater numbers 
would get the work done more quickly. And yet, the work was accomplished by a small group of returning captives, just a remnant of people, because they were standing together. You see, separation, as I say, produces true unity among believers. Separate from evil, and therefore you're able to be agreed in purpose. Your ranks are purged of those who would hinder the work, and God's people are unified in their doctrines and their beliefs, and they stand together, and they are strong to do the work of God. Furthermore, a third issue I didn't get to the last time. I'll just mention these quickly in this, these opening remarks. A third thing is separation is God's way of unmasking the enemy. You see, it was when the Lord's people refused to enter into the compromise, the proposed compromise with the people of the land, the Samaritans, these false worshippers of other gods, then they were revealed as being the adversaries and the enemies that they always were. You see, they had come with the veneer of friendship. They had come with the outward uh, profession of love. But their posture soon changed when God's people declared themselves to be following the position of separation. And then you see the suspicions of God's men were proved to be correct because they were suspicious, of course, all along. All along they knew what lay behind this suggestion, this overture. Let us work with you. We worship you, uh, your God, as you do, and so on. They, they knew fine well what was going on, and therefore their stance was confirmed as being the right one, and the mask of deceit was torn down. And the tactics of their enemies, as they now were seen to be in open, vivid colors, were changed altogether. If you look here at Ezra 4 again quickly, and I just simply summarize what this chapter is all about, apart from what we've seen already in it, under these few little thoughts here. They, they used the tactic of intimidation. Look at verse number 4 of Ezra 4. It says, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. That happened as soon as God's men said, You have nothing to do with us. In the building of God's house, immediately they began to weaken and intimidate and trouble God's servants. That's the work of the enemy. The enemy sought to engender discouragement and intimidate them and make them feel that their work was not possible. Another thing is in verse 5, here it says, they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Notice the word frustrate. On one hand, there was intimidation, verse 4, and, and now on the other hand, in verse 5, there is the use of what's called here frustration. They constantly sought to frustrate the whole scheme, the whole purpose of the servants of God, and thereby stop them from working. Verse 5 makes that clear. And notice who they go to. They go to the kings and those in authority to have them stop the work of God. Then in verse number 6, there's accusation. It says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, another of these Persian rulers, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation 
against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And the devil is seen there very clearly because the word for accusation in the Hebrew language is the word sitna, which is very close to the Hebrew word for Satan. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren always. And they come now with their accusations. And that flows on in then to misrepresentation from verse 7 right through to verse number 16, really the close of the chapter, well, almost the close of the chapter. They bring a complete presentation of details about the Jews rebuilding this city and so forth. And all of it is a misrepresentation of what they were seeking to do. So those are the four tactics that they used. They are very clearly spelled out for us. Intimidation, frustration, accusation, misrepresentation. And you will notice from what I point out from these verses, was actually in the text, clearly and plainly, that nothing has changed. These are still the tactics of the enemies of God and His people. And the sad thing is here with regard to what went on with all of these tactics employed and brought against the people of God, you will find that they they succeeded for a period in obtaining a decree from the Persian Empire, or the Persian Emperor Artaxerxes, and the work was actually stopped. The powers that be intervened and they shut down the work of God. The decree was enforced. The work ceased. It remained at a standstill for upwards of 20 years until you get to the reign of another Persian, that is uh, this man Darius, of whom you read in the book of Haggai, where we read a little earlier. And so the work of God is closed down. It is shut down because these tactics are employed and the work of God ceases, as we saw there, in, uh, we see it there at the very end of Ezra. For look at verse number 24. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased on to the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. That brings us right up to or forward to the year 520 B.C. They came back in 537 from Babylon, And for the next 17 years or so after the work has recommenced or the work has been done in the early stages of building the temple, it ceases for the next period of time right down through all these years. And during all those years, nothing has been done for God. Nothing has taken place. Not a stone has been laid. Not a plank has been put in place. Nothing has happened until something then occurred. And that's what we find in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where we read of two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And remember the date here, this is 520 B.C. All these years have slipped away. Nothing else has taken place, and yet God began to move again. And that's why I read with you from Haggai chapter 1. So let's go back to Haggai now, having set out for you what's going on here, what has taken place. We want to come now to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai and his colleague, Zechariah, are the two main prophets of that era who come along, who are raised up by God. It is firmly believed that Haggai is the older of the two. Zechariah is just a young man, and they are laboring together in the preaching of the Word of God in those very days. 
In chapter 1, verse 13 of Haggai, you read these words. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message. They are vital words. There's this man of God described. He's described as the Lord's messenger. And he is in the Lord's message. He has God's message. And the result is that the work of the rebuilding of the temple is resumed. And we saw that in those last three verses of Haggai chapter 1. Now do you see why it's so important to bring all these Scriptures together and understand the historical narrative and the layout with regard to all the time that has gone by. And when it seems that the work of rebuilding the temple and what it signified and what it stood for is now shut down and come to an end, God steps in and God sees to it that His work goes forward and that the blessing of God is given and there's fresh impetus And I want today just to suggest to you from what we find here in Haggai's message that there are certain thoughts and certain points that are of great importance for our own day and times. God's Word is always up to date. It is always relevant. There's something here for us to notice today about the message of Haggai with regard to the great need for God's work to move forward. That's really the emphasis that I want to make in this message, the work of God moving forward as a result of Haggai's message. Now, is it your desire for the work of God to move forward? I think as we look at Haggai 1 today, we might discover that in our hearts, in the heart of the heart, the very center of the heart, there may not be the desire to see God's work go forward as there ought to be, maybe as there once were, but it's no longer there. And I pray that God will take His Word today and He will bring a stirring among you, my congregation. As Mr. Stewart and I are your ministers and we preach to you, our longing, our prayer is that God will come and God will stir our hearts stir your hearts. That's exactly what happened. Look with me at verse 14 of Haggai 1. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and so forth. And toward the end of the verse, He stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And it gives you the very date When all this began to happen, the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, the second year of Darius the king, there was a stirring. There was a new stirring, a new movement of God, a fresh stirring. I appeal to you, child of God. I ask you the question this morning, when was your heart last stirred? When were you once, when were you last brought into a phase in your life where freshness and new vitality and new desire awoke within your soul. You see, what we're seeing today brings before us the awful danger of the work of God being simply treated in a fashion that is shameful. And that's what happened in these days, and we'll see that more and more this morning. And what's needed, therefore, is for the Lord to come and stir our hearts. And I need that you need that, 
The whole work of God in general needs that. Not only in the Free Presbyterian Church, it desperately needs the stirring of God. But among others of light mind and light precious faith. And may God today show us these things and have us get before Him and pray as never before that such a time will come. Haggai's message did three things. Haggai's message contained an exposure. It contained an exposure. Haggai's message reveals details that are not found back in Ezra, although their contemporaries and all of the time frame is the same. But these details that Haggai includes in this first chapter are not found in Ezra that there was blame on the part of the congregation for the stalemate situation with regard to the rebuilding of the Lord's house. And now Haggai comes, and as he begins to preach, he exposes this, that the blame lay with God's people, not really with the enemies, but with those who were the people of God. He did two things in this exposure. I'll mention them now, and then I'll go into them in more detail. He rebuked them, and then he reminded them. That's how you can sum it up. So look with me at this. Haggai's message contained an exposure. This is the first main point. He rebuked them. In verses 2 to 5 of chapter 1, you will see that those words in those verses contain the thought of the servant of God coming along to rebuke the Lord's people. And it was really a rebuking of their attitude. Yeah, there was a lack of action, a lack of activity, a lack of work, and so forth, but there was something wrong with the attitude of the congregation toward the Lord's cause and the Lord's service. Their complacency was rebuked. Verse number 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And there is a rebuking of complacency because we find from these words that the opposition that was encountered in Ezra chapter 4 had really been a test sent by the Lord upon His people, but the result of their being tested was that they became complacent and they became careless. You see, it was not the mind of God that the work would actually cease. And despite the decree of Ahasuerus, they should have continued, proved by the fact that the rebuilding now recommenced at the preaching of Haggai, not because a new decree had actually been issued. And so the work stopped because of the carelessness and the complacency of these people who had come back from Babylon. When Artaxerxes gave his decree, that became the excuse that their complacent and careless spirits need it because it's already in their hearts. And for the next 20 years almost, the work of God was set aside. They, they put it aside and they, and they didn't attend to it. Let me ask you a question today. Have you been putting off Certain things, spiritually speaking, I know this has to do with the rebuilding of the temple in that physical sense, but taking the principle out of it, the spiritual principle out of it, have you been putting off things 
concerning which God has been speaking to your heart. I mean about the building of the spiritual body, the spiritual temple of the Lord, which of course is pictured in what these people were endeavoring to do. And complacency comes and carelessness arises in our souls. And we are not involved, we're not engaged, we're not doing those things that lead to and contribute to the advancement and the rebuilding of the work of God that has fallen into terrible desolation in our day and in our time. And there is no getting away from that. We need to be honest. We need to face reality. Look across the whole uh, face of the work of God today across our little province and even farther afield. And you'll discover, my dear friend, it has fallen into days and times of great and terrible devastation, spiritually speaking. And I am showing to you from the Word of God here today that the root cause is always us. It's not anybody else. It is us ourselves. Their complacency was rebuked. Their carnality was rebuked in this exposure that he brought with regard to this time and this day in which he found himself as a preacher of the Word of God. Look at verse number 4. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? You see, Notice what we we saw in verse 2 again. Just notice that again. The people were saying the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. But then you come down to verse 4, and now the exposure continues. And here is the question that comes back from the Lord in response to what they had said, their careless, complacent attitude. No, the time hasn't come yet. And then the Lord says to them, Well, If that's true, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house house lie waste? What you have there is actually divine sarcasm. They maintain that it was not time to attend to the things of God, but they have been given, been giving so much time, energy, effort, to those things that pleased them. It is the age-old problem of carnality, fleshliness, entering into our minds, into our hearts, into our lives, so that we look at the work of God and we, and we do not give it the time that is needed, that is required to see it done properly. But we seem to have all the time in the world to do other things. Now, you see, there's nothing wrong with building your house. Don't mistake me this morning. Don't mistake the Lord either. Well, this was physically true here. They were guilty of attending to their own houses and building them when the temple was only started. The foundation alone was in and nothing else was done. That's actually true. But again, we draw out the spiritual truth from that. As I refer to this as an exposure of their carnality, it was also rebuked because in their own thinking they were saying that their own affairs should be given the priority that belongs to the work of God. I think of the words of our Savior there in Matthew chapter 6, a classic passage as He addresses the disciples in His own day and He warns them against this very thing. And He speaks to them about their attitude toward life, toward what we eat and what we drink and what we put on. 
and so forth. And what does he say to them as he brings it all to a climax? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things shall be added unto you. Now the Lord makes it very clear that we all need to clothe ourselves and feed our families and all the rest of things that are legitimate in everyday life and for which we work and we labor to provide. But you see, the problem is, and the Lord puts His finger on it, the danger is very, very quickly you can make all of that the priority in your life. And when that happens then there is a fleshly-mindedness that has crept in. There's a carnality that has come in. Carnal priority, a carnal program, call it what you will. Uh, it is here in Haggai chapter 1. And their sin was not the manner, you see. Their, their, their sin was not the manner in which they furnished their homes. And that's the example the Lord uses because it's so relevant. They're attending to their own homes where they live. But God is saying, my house, is lying in ruins, and you're not attending to it, and you've got your priorities all wrong, and that has to be exposed in order for there to be the stirring and the working and the moving of God again in our hearts and in our lives. What they were really doing was they were pleasing themselves instead of seeking to please the Lord. What a contrast with that godly man, King David. I mean, read in 2 Samuel 7, verse 2, what, what happened in David's life. He had been brought to the kingdom. He's on the throne. And he, he's, he's dwelling now in what he calls a house of cedar. But as he sat down one day, he thought about it. You know what he said? 2 Samuel 7, 2, I read you his words. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth in curtains. And it troubled David, it annoyed David, that he had a, a house of cedar and the ark of God, the very center of the worship of God, that piece of furniture where there was the mercy seat and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and the cloud of glory would have come down. It's, it's neglected, it's in, a, it's in a set of curtains. And my friend, what a, what a commentary on the work of God today. The work of God is just shoved aside as if it doesn't really matter. And there's really no concern about it. And let me tell you something. One of the evidence of, of the lack of concern is a lack of participation in the prayer meetings of God's house. We've had prayer since last Sunday. It was announced for weeks were you there? Were you there? Why not? It's not that you didn't have time to plan or arrange your schedule. No. But why not? Why is it, folks, that that which is the vital feature of the Word of God is that part of it which is most often forsaken. And other things come in. Legitimate in their own place, I'm not denying that. But when they take over and they dominate, now leaving aside sickness and emergencies, I understand all that, and sudden need to be away or something like that, I understand all those things. 
And I understand as well there are other meetings on. It's not very easy to divide yourself. But, but, where are our minds? This is the powerhouse, the house of prayer, meeting with God. And so Haggai comes and he has to rebuke them. Then he has to remind them as he exposes things. And I can only quickly skim over these thoughts in Haggai 1. As he exposed the sin of the nation, he reminded them of the fact now listen carefully what I want to say, not because I say it, because it's here, and I want you to see it. He reminded them of the fact that the chastening hand of the Lord had been upon them in various ways. For example, he reminded them of the futility of their efforts. Look at verse 6, you have sown much, you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's none warm. He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put them into a bag with holes. You know what you have at the last part of that verse? You have a situation that is so relevant today where it seems that money goes no length. Uh, this is a very striking commentary on our nation. Never mind anything else. What's happening in our nation? Well, long, long ago, in that general sense of things, the house of God was forsaken. It has fallen into disrepair. The whole religion, the whole system of religion of our nation, that was a Protestant Reformed religion that God Himself brought about, that He established in our land among our people, but through apostasy and carelessness that resulted from apostasy and even enmity to God, now the chastening hand of the Lord is on the nation. And politicians don't know what to do or where to turn. And one prime minister comes along and she's no sooner into power than there's a conspiracy to throw her out. That's where we are. And my friend, the chastening hand of the Lord is upon the nation in that aspect of things, but also financially. Things are collapsing financially. As we sit or gather here today in the house of God, or so it seems, so we're told. But anyhow, you know how much more difficult it is to feed your family and clothe them and pay your mortgage and all the rest of it. And we've got to come back and look at this. God says to His people here, He says, you need to see this. You're sowing much, you bring in little, and so on. You earn wages, but you put them into a bag. It seems to be a bag with holes in the bottom, and the, the, the wages just fall right through. Oh, how up-to-date the Word of God is. Inflation. The cost of living crisis as we're hearing about. And again, sometimes we take this with a dose of salt, wondering just what is going on. But at the same time, there's reality to it to some degree. It certainly seems that. But you see, the Lord has to remind us that with all our efforts, and let's translate this into the spiritual realm now. You take those words, you've sown much, you bring in little. Has there not been 
sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing of the gospel, but very little to see for it. That is true. That reminds me of the day of the judges when Gideon came along. And you read in Judges 6, the early part of that chapter, that the Israelites sold. They put in their harvest. And then the Midianites came along and they ate everything that Israel had sown. And there's a picture there of what the devil does. The devil's the enemy. We sow the seed. We sow the seed. We give out tracts. We have open airs. We have children's Bible clubs and all the rest of it. And we appeal to sinners to come under the Word of God. A lot of sowing, but very little reaping. And why was that in Gideon's day? in a physical dimension, because Israel had done the very same thing. They had turned away from the Lord, and they had to be rebuked, and the Lord chastened them. He reminded them of the futility of their efforts, verse 6, of the foolishness of their expectations. Look at verse 9. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste. And you run every man unto his own house. They had great expectations, but the Lord simply blew on them all. I can, I can only mention these little details. Look at verses 10 and 11. And he reminds them now, this is part of the exposure. He rebukes them and he reminds them. And he reminds them of these issues I've just been mentioning here. The futility of their efforts and in verse 6 and, and the foolishness of their expectations in verse 9. And, and therefore, just pause there a moment or two about verse number 9. And think about the, the fact, my friend, that we can all neglect the things of God. And yet we expect the Lord to bless us. Let me ask you a few questions. Should you be expecting God to answer prayer if you are not giving yourself to prayer? Should you be expecting a greater understanding of the Scriptures? I may be asking God to give you a greater understanding of the Scriptures, but how much time do you give to the Word of God? And when you come to the house of God to hear the Word expounded and explained, you maybe go away mumbling and grumbling about the time that you were kept. Why should you expect the Lord to bless you and give you a richer understanding of His Word? If all you can think about is other matters this afternoon and you're not prepared to give a little more time to hearing the Word of God. What about this? Why should you expect the conversion of your children and your young people when you, and I don't know, but I'll put it this way, when you may never open the Bible with them at home, and conduct family worship and read the Scriptures to them, which God commands in His Word. Fathers, that is your duty. And it shouldn't be a duty. It should be a delight. 
You should see yourself as the, the prophet in your home, the one who takes your children aside and you set them down and you read the Word with them and you go over the things of God with them. And maybe, my friend, you failed in that and you're still failing in that. Well, why should you expect the Lord to give you much in that realm of things when you have neglected all that? Oh, you see, this has to be said because it's where we are today in Christ's church in the visible sense in so many cases. He reminded them then of the fruitlessness of their experience. Verse number 10, verse 10. Therefore, God always has a reason. Therefore, because my house lies waste, now verse 10, the heaven over you has stayed from dew, the earth has stayed from her fruit, and I called for a drought upon the land, upon the mountains, upon the corn, upon the new wine, upon the oil, upon that which the ground bringeth forth, upon men, upon cattle, upon all the labor of the hands. I say again how relevant to the 21st century these words are. This is where our nation is in the physical aspect of things. But taking the spiritual lessons, this is where Christ's church is. It says in verse 10, and here's the striking thing, therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew. In the Bible, dew is a symbol of the Holy Ghost. And so taking it that way and that, that spiritual lesson out of it, the Lord is saying, you forsake my house, you forsake spiritual things, you don't do what you should be doing, child of God, and God will withhold the Holy Ghost. That grieves the Spirit, what we've been seeing here. All that Haggai exposes here grieves the Spirit of God and causes the fruitlessness that's in view and the drought to come in that spiritual sense now, my friend, you need to search your heart and search your soul right now and ask yourself the question, am I enjoying the Holy Spirit in my life? Am I walking in the Spirit? Am I praying in the Spirit? Am I living in the Spirit? Is the dew of heaven on me, even in the midst of all that's going on? Do I have the presence and the power the fragrance and the activity of the Spirit of God? Or has God shut the heavens and there's no dew in my life? And as a congregation, we must face this. We can preach and teach and do all we want and should. But without the Holy Ghost, without the Holy Ghost, all is vain. Do you see how relevant this is? Haggai's message, it did, it did bring forth this exposure. Quickly, well, my time is just about gone anyhow, his message conveyed an exhortation. Not only was it designed to expose, but to exhort, which means to, to bring home to these people that there is still time and God will bless them. And they're to break their hearts and they're, to, and they're to attend to matters. And so he exhorted them to reflection. Verse number 5. Notice this. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your, your ways. 
The same in verse 7. Consider your ways. That's reflection. That little phrase or that verbal phrase, consider your ways, it means set your heart on your own ways. It signifies serious reflection, uh, reflection with regard to spiritual matters. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 59. As I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies, as I thought on my ways, I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Or Lamentations 3 verse 40, let us try our ways and turn again to the Lord. You see, here is the opportunity. That's what has been said here. Consider your ways, search your heart, reflect on where you are spiritually, and then give yourself to the things of God anew and afresh. And then he also exhorted them not only to reflection, but to restoration. Look at verse number 8. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Restoration to duty and service and so on. But you know what that verse is saying to us today in a very real way? When God calls His people to restoration, He always points to the solution. Here the house of God has not been built, and the Lord simply says, go up to the mountain, get wood up there, and come back down and get back to the building of my house. And what He's telling you, my dear friend, is the materials were available. Now the materials for the rebuilding of our souls and spiritual life etc., are available to us. And that's why restoration is to be sought and to be followed out. What God uh, has provided for us in Jesus Christ is for the purpose of rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding our own lives, rebuilding our spiritual experiences and our walk with God in the gospel temple, in our hearts, our homes, in the congregation, and in society all around us. In other words, what we need to do, the restoration, is already there. He said, get up to the mountains, the woods there, it's growing, cut it down, bring it back. The Lord's telling you today that what you need for a restoring of spiritual life is something that is actually on hand. Christ, our covenant head, has done everything essential to save us, to sanctify us, to cause us to grow, to cause us to develop spiritually, to cause us to be like Him, and therefore we go to Him, dear believers, at where? Get up the mountain again. That speaks of going up toward God, rising up away from the plain and the valley, getting back as close to the Lord as you possibly can. But you might obtain from the Lord what you need for the rebuilding, the restoration that's the exhortation to reflect on all this and to be restored again to a place of usefulness. And then in the third and closing place today, I simply skim through these thoughts. Otherwise, I'll never get through the book of Ezra. But Haggai's message caused an effect. It caused an effect. Look with me at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, now listen, obeyed the voice of the Lord. And if you look a little farther down to verse 12, part B, 
It says toward the end of the verse, and the people did fear before the Lord. So there were two things here about the effect of Haggai's message. There was obedience, and then there was reverence. That's what the word fear really signifies. And notice how verse 12 commences, then, then, here is the evidence that his preaching is having an impact. There is a movement. There is a response. There's something happening here. Obedience rises up within their souls. They're telling themselves, we have heard something today, and we need to do something about it. Do you see that? And furthermore, out of reverence for our God against whom we have sinned, we need to do something here. We need to obey, and we need to start to reverence Him and fear Him as we should. The actual work, you know, didn't start for another three weeks or restart. You can work that out yourselves. You can see the dates here and the times. It's all in here. And that would mean that for those three weeks, they were broken before the Lord. They felt the impact of the Word. Their hearts were broken. And the Lord had dealt with them, you see, through Haggai's message. That message that brought that exposure. That message that brought that exhortation. That message that now produces an effect. It has worked. And you know, my dear friend, every preacher who wants to see God's work go forward often, often, often leaves the pulpit. First of all, lamenting over his personal failure. Even in preaching. And I'm not saying that in some form of mock humility. It is the truth. You don't know how often, you have no idea, and again, it's not to throw attention to me or Mr. Stewart, but you have no idea how often a preacher goes home and says, Lord, I'd be far better not in the ministry. My ministry is useless. And I mean that, folks. And only if God would move. That's what we want to see. But let me ask you, in what manner are you going to go home today? Are you going to go home saying, I've heard that all before and it doesn't really matter. It sure is old and worn out. Or are you going to catch yourselves on in the light of the fact that our little country is closer and closer and closer to absolute ruin, and unless God steps in, there is nothing but ruination coming. And I'm talking about spiritual ruin. I have no idea what's going to happen politically. None. I don't think anybody does. Or in any other dimension. But I do know that we are in deep trouble spiritually. And it seems that we as God's people don't really care. And may God's Word today have an effect. You see, to encourage you here just in closing, look at verse 13. Here was a gracious promise. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. I am with you. Now can you, are you not amazed at that? 
that the Lord is still with these people in spite of all their sin. And we shouldn't be amazed in a sense, but we should be in another sense. That he doesn't just cast us off and say, I'm finished with you. But you see, the Lord says, I'm with you. There is our covenant God. And we believe that. I hope you do. But my friend, it's one thing to believe in God's covenantal possession and dealings with His people is an entirely different thing to actually live in the enjoyment of it and, and know that the Lord's gracious promise is always real. And then you have in verse 14 His gracious power. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And then moved down quickly toward the end of the verse, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. I was greatly encouraged this morning in the prayer meeting when a brother in the Lord prayed along these very lines and actually asked the Lord that today we might have a, a fresh stirring. We need that. Do you feel the need of it? Are you happy with your spiritual state? Do you believe that you're really in the place where God wants you to be? Is your life on fire or is your life dead? Are you enjoying the things of God or are you eaten up with bitterness for some reason or other? What is it? Here's what it needs to be. That you'll go away saying, God has spoken to me today. and I want my heart to be right with God. I want my spirit stirred, my soul revived. I want to see God's work blessed. And I will give myself to it with all my might and main. As I said earlier, for 20 years just about, deadness, decadence, so on. And then the Lord comes again and begins to move. And may God, by His Spirit, come down and touch your soul and touch my soul. And I will know that has happened when it's demonstrated by a congregation giving themselves seriously to prayer and the preaching of the Word. And may the Lord bring that about. Let us bow together. And may he write his truth in every heart today. Father in heaven, use thy word. Bless it to our souls. It is only thou who canst bless it and make it effective and have it operate as it needs to and bring out the results that are indispensable for the very future of the work of God. O God, come, we pray. Thy Spirit remains among us, as these verses shows us, show us, and may the Spirit of God descend. Part of thy blessing, grant thy mercy throughout the rest of this day. Help us to honor the Sabbath. Help us to walk with God. Help us all to be in thy house tonight. Help us to fill out the prayer meetings and lay hold upon Thee. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.